So Psalm chapter 29. Um, by the way, we just, we just spent a, about a half hour worshiping together and highlighting the sovereignty of God. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I hope you did, because that's precisely where we're at tonight in Psalm chapter 29. It is all about the sovereignty of God. And last week, we, we talked a bit about the, how, how this uh, psalm is structured and, and so on. And I believe that we got to uh, verse, we got through v- verse four, didn't we? So we're going to pick up the voice of the Lord in verse five. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Since God is the God of glory and his voice is powerful and full of majesty, that's, that's what we, we read in, uh, in the previous verse. Um, and since that is the case, um, these verses are honestly simply reflecting that reality. Um, he, his voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Um, throughout the scripture, we, we hear this uh, common phrase, the cedars of Lebanon. And, and uh, perhaps we wonder, okay, what in the world is that? Well, it truly is cedar trees, large cedar trees that grew in the land of Lebanon. And where is Lebanon? It's just north of Israel, right? Um, and in many ways, I think you could liken it um, similarly to what we experience here in the United States as uh, the great redwoods of Northern California. They're majestic trees, and they are, now granted the cedar trees of Lebanon are not nearly as large and tall as, as the redwoods in Northern California, but it is that same sense of majesty that is at work there. And, and it, it describes... Um, it describes this, this uh, sense of power, this sense of awe. And what's happening here in these verses is, is uh, particularly the, the last part of, of verse 5. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. What is that about? Well, the, the, uh, this, these cedars, again, are are describing that which is lofty and powerful. Um, in Isaiah chapter 2, if you would turn there, uh, it's to the right just a little bit. Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hop, skip, and jump back and forth a little bit tonight through our Bible. And that's, uh, that's we're going to work at... at, at uh, finding these scriptures quickly and, and becoming better acquainted with where things are. Um, if you're new to the, to the Bible, uh, don't worry about it. I'll try to give you some direction. You don't have to go back to the index. 
and to find out where things are. Chapter 2 of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is just beyond um, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, which is just to the right of the Psalms. Here in um, Isaiah chapter 2, let's look at verses 12 and 13. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan. Um, this is describing the Lord as being sovereign over nations. And, and it is his prerogative to even bring nations to their knees. If we look throughout uh, world history, we see that happening uh, in, in various ways. You remember the, the vision of Daniel and the, the, uh, the uh, image that he spoke of there? And we see, we see there in the explanation of, of that great image, nations that were, were once very powerful and then brought low. And that's, that's the sovereign work of God uh, through, uh, through his agents, through his power, through his um, wisdom, and dare I say, perhaps even through his grace. Because through that expression of his power, even among nations, we see the Lord's salvation coming to pass in the life of his people. So God brings the pride of a nation low. Um, I have to say, in our country right now, we have, um, there is, there's a good bit of pride going on, right? And I think we can likely expect that the Lord's not going to tolerate pride forever because that sets up a competition between his creation and the creator. And he's not going to stand for that. That's not, uh, that's not his desire at all because pride is a corrupter. Pride is that which brings low eventually those who are, are enslaved by it. Would you go to Ezekiel? That's to the right just a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 31. I'm having trouble finding it myself. Ezekiel chapter 31. And there we read, um, again, a, uh, the statement of, of uh, how the Lord brings about uh, uh, the end of nations. We, we read here in chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, about Assyria and, and, and Pharaoh himself. This is actually written about Pharaoh, but is using Assyria's fate as, as a description of what, what will happen to the Pharaoh. And it came about in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, that is the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy and say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, 
Whom are you like in your greatness? That's appealing to his pride, right? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. Skip now down to verse 10. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature, it has set its top among the clouds and its heart is haughty in its loftiness. Therefore, I will give it into the hand of the despot of the nations and he will thoroughly deal with it according to its wickedness. I have driven it away. And alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down and left it on the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land and all the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. On its ruins, all the birds of the heavens will dwell and all the beasts of the field will be on its fallen branches. The imagery here, again, is of a nation in ruins. And, and uh, the prophet is using the, the imagery of the cedars, even of, the Le- of Lebanon. And, and that is, uh, again, what is being spoken about here in Psalm 29. So if we go back to Psalm 29 and look at verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. That's the, I, the idea there is it's not just God speaking about big trees. It's God speaking about nations. His power, his might is all-surpassing um, and it, it, is, it is profound in nature, and it is profound uh, even among the movements of humanity. Let's look at verse 6. And he makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. Now, what in the world does that mean? That's, uh, that's kind of feels like it's pretty far out there, right? Well, let's unpack it just a little bit. Uh, what does, uh, last week we talked about the, the fact that um, the, the uh, Phoenician god Baal or Baal as some, some uh, say uh, was the god of, of the atmosphere, the god of weather, right? And, and the, some would say that this psalm is written in direct opposition to, to the worship of that false god. Um, so we, we see this, this, um, this imagery of weather throughout. And my question is this, what does thunder do to barnyard animals? How many grew up on a farm? Very few of us, okay? What happens when, when uh, you've got a big storm coming? The animals get agitated, right? And they start moving around and, and um, uh, end up sometimes in trouble. And you have to, you have to corral them. You have to uh, protect them from themselves in a lot of ways. Well, um, some would say that, that uh, 
that is what is going on here. There's confusion, perhaps. Uh, there's disorientation that, that the Lord uh, is bringing that up even upon these nations. Um, so who is Lebanon? Again, that's the, the territory that is north of, of Israel. And it is, it is a, a nation state that, that is even there in biblical times. Now, who is Syrian? Any idea who Syrian would be? Well, um, my, my first blush thought is, well, that's got to be Syria or Assyria, right? That's a huge nation that, that was uh, brought low by the power of the Lord. And, and that could be indeed the case. But this idea of skipping like a calf and, and um, skipping like a young wild ox is kind of, kind of out there, kind of odd. Well, if, you, if, if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 3, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but chapter 3 in verses 8 and 9, we see an, a specific reference to this word Syrian, and it's not what we think it is. It reads, thus we, look, we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. And then we see these brackets there in the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. So what is Hermon? It's a great comic. Do you remember Herman the comic? Anybody out there? No? Oh, come on. Some of you remember Herman. My favorite comic of, uh, that he did was this great big guy sitting like this, and he's throwing darts, and his darts land on his stomach. And somebody is off to the side saying, throw them farther. That's, that's my weird sense of humor. No, Herman here is not a comic. Herman speaks of a mountain, and it's a very important mountain uh, within the scope of the, the history of the children of Israel. Even today, it's very important. We've got a map. I want to show you a map of, of uh, showing you where uh, Herman is. Uh, Mount Herman in Arabic is Jabal Alskaiha, and it is, uh, I don't know if you can, it's really uh, a little difficult to see there, but you see those red lines going from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee up north, and right up north there is a large peak, and that is Mount Hermon. It is on the northern end of what today we call the Golan Heights, and all of that uh, territory is very, very important, even today, to the state of Israel, because it speaks of, of it, 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 it basically becomes a fortress. It is the high ground, if you will. So Hermon is that mountain that, that is being spoken of with this word Syrian. 
He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. Now, wait a second. If Syrian is a mountain, how does a mountain skip like a wild ox? How, what, that just does not really make a lot of sense, does it? It maybe, maybe David's, maybe David's smoking something that's, what's going on? Well, let me, let me uh, suggest this to you. We're talking about land, right? And we're talking about even mountains. And if, if, a, uh, if the land is moving, what's happening? Probably an earthquake. It's interesting. I found this, um, this uh, bit of news from as recently as December 2nd, 2016. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because it was angry. That's Psalm 18, verse 7. At 6.35 a.m. Friday morning on December 2nd, a 3.8 Richter scale earthquake gently shook the residents of northern Israel awake as the first rains of the seasons fell. No damage or injuries were reported. The epicenter of the quake was reported to be about three miles north of the Sea of Galilee. That's on the southern slopes, the southern slopes of Mount Hermon. And so what we see here, even in this picture of, 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 that, that David is painting for us in Psalm 29, is the fact that the, the Lord is sovereign over the earth in such a way that he is able to speak and the mountains quake. The voice of the Lord is powerful. And that's what's happening here. The voice of the Lord, verse 7, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Flames of fire. Uh, what do you suppose that's imagery of? Lightning, absolutely. Flames of fire. Um, uh, some of the men in here went to the men's retreat this weekend, and we, we revisited the story of Elijah and his confrontation with uh, the, the priests of, of the false gods. And what happened there? He built an altar and poured water all over it. There's a whole lot to mine in that whole passage there. But in the end, he simply prayed to the Lord to consume the sacrifice as a show of his power, and the Lord consumed it with fire. And more than likely what happened was a big lightning bolt hitting that, that, uh, that altar. And here we see that imagery as well. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Uh, let's go on. The verse, verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So here again, the imagery is that of an earthquake, right? He, he shakes the wilderness. Now, where, where in the 
world is Kadesh. Any idea? It, Kadesh is to the south, to the south of even the Dead Sea. And we see that in the spies' report uh, when they came back, having gone into the promised land, when the children of Israel came to this place of entering the, the, the promised land and, and they sent out 12 spies and they came back and gave their report of a land flowing with milk and honey and yet they chose not to go in because of fear, right? Well, they were there in that place, in that wilderness of Kadesh. That's, that's um, uh, where where they had gathered or where they launched their, their, um, uh, their investigation of the, the promised land from that area. Now, the word shakes here in verse 8 is an interesting word. It means to writhe in pain, to writhe in pain or in fear. Um, and so here we see, again, this this upheaval, this writhing of the earth. I, I think indeed it is uh, the imagery of, a, of, a, of an earthquake. It's very cool, however, to think about what the next uh, verse is. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. So here we see this imagery of birth. And again, it's that it's that word shakes in, in verse 8, again, means to writhe in pain. And in the, uh, in the process of birth, we know there is this writhing of pain. And it's working out something that is very good. It is working out uh, the Lord's provision. It's working out even brand new life. So, so we see that. Here, the, the word strips, the strips the forest bare means to um, even to make naked. It's that idea to bear it all, uh, to uncover. And, and in so doing, there is, there is judgment, there is even humiliation. And again, we're talking about this is the, the power of God in nature and even according to uh, the, the descriptions here of how he, he, he undresses nations. He is able to bring low the proud. Um, and that's what happens here. Verse, verse um, 9, the second half of that, is very interesting to me. And in his temple, everything says glory. In his temple, everything says glory. We, we see this, this picture of, of awesome power in nature and even destruction. And yet in his temple, everything says glory. Um, do you see, I, I, I guess I'm, I look at that and I see this juxtaposition of of this, this uh, terrible power, this awesome power that is 
that is frightening even. And then in his temple, this word glory. How does that work? How does that work? This this juxtaposition of this uh, great destruction and the glory of God. Well, the glory of God is revealed in not only his goodness, of his kindness, of his gentleness, it's also revealed in his judgment. His holiness is is, um, that which delivers justice. And that in itself is good news for those who are in need of it. Good news for the captive. Good news for the downtrodden. Good news for those that have been overwhelmed by by the the uh, by sin, by the terrible uh, realities of 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 sinful nations, and the, there is deliverance even in that. And so, what here we see this picture of the glory of God being expressed even in judgment. Um, his temple. It's exp- the, the word temple is used there. What do we know about the temple? What, what, disc- what is the essential element of the temple? Say it again. It, is it not the presence of God? It's the dwelling place of God. And, and so this... this uh, this description here is that the dwelling place of God explodes with this praise of who he is in all his might and his power. Now, it's interesting, uh, in the New Testament, what's described as the temple of the Lord? Our body, right? Yeah. So on this end of redemption, the description here is that when justice happens, even in us, there is glory being expressed. The glory of God is expressed even in us as we obey him, as we submit to him, as we uh, delight in his presence. And as uh, even in the judgment, even if, we, if, if we're not right with God, if we're not right with God and, and there is judgment that happens as a result of that, the reality is that the glory of God is even expressed in that because God's holiness is expressed even in judgment. His holiness is expressed even in our own bodies as we walk uh, with him or even apart from him. His praise, his honor will not be diminished. It is, it is all pervasive. It is uh, sovereign in every aspect. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. 
The Lord here again, is he was king at the flood. What do we know about the flood? This is speaking of the flood of Noah. What was the, what was the flood of Noah all about? Come on. It was about judgment, was it not? It was about the judgment of the earth. And the, the good news on the end of that judgment is a promise, right? A promise that the Lord will not destroy the earth by flood again. And, and the seal of that or the sign of that promise is what? The rainbow, right. So we're, what we see here is that the, the Lord is is king even in his exercise of judgment. We see that in, in Genesis chapter 5 through 9, and, and that is the, the, uh, the beautiful picture of his sovereign power over sin. He has authority over chaos. He has authority over sin. He has authority over rebellion. And the neat thing, the neat picture here is that not only does he have the authority to bring that to an end, to bring judgment against those things, but in the flood, what we also see is the ability to bring new life even out of death, to bring newness even out of judgment. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever, forever underscore forever there is there is no uh, there is no place in history there is no place in our present nor our future in which the Lord will not be sovereign over all creation and over all history now the word sovereignty I, Carl and I had this interesting discussion this weekend about sovereignty and it's important for us to 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 unpack that just a little bit. Um, sovereignty means almighty power over all things, right? That's nothing else can stand except the sovereign. If, if God is sovereign, he's sovereign over everything. Now, the question then is if God is sovereign over all things, uh, how is it that we deal with things that God says he hates, like sin. How is it that that is allowed to even be present in the earth, in all of his creation? How does, how does that work if he is sovereign over all things? It's a, it's a very important question. Um, Again, Carl and I had this conversation this weekend, and his thought was this. He, he had gone, um, gone to um, uh, share Christ with, with individuals. I'm not sure where you were, but um, he encountered a, a young lady who, who asked this very bold question and, and a very honest question. Where was God when I tried to kill myself? Doesn't that just tear your heart out? And it's disarming because how, how do we answer such a question? If God is sovereign, 
Why did he allow me to have these, these awful feelings? Why did he allow these terrible things to happen to me? If God is sovereign and he is love, why do these things that look like, like uh, uh, anything but love happen in my life? That's a very existential question. It, it, it is, it's important for us to have a, 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 a real answer to that. So what is that answer? God in all his sovereignty chose because he's able to choose. He's sovereign to do whatever he wants. He chose to give every single one of us in this room and on this entire planet the freedom of choice. You know, we are created in the image of God. And part of that is Part of that image of God is that ability to choose. He imparts his image in us in that. So the result, however, is that unfortunately, we very often make bad choices and we bear the consequences of those choices. I don't believe that it's reasonable for us to say, um, well, whatever happens will be God's will. Have you ever heard that? Sometimes people operate with that kind of thought process. They, they, um, they in, in, uh, in a situation uh, where, where it, it appears something is tenuous or or maybe something happened that was really honestly awful. And they say, well, it must have been God's will because after all, God is sovereign and nothing happens apart from his purposes, right? How do we sort that out? If God's purposes are good, why do we find ourselves dealing with Bad things. That's right. Some of us, some, some of us make bad choices, and we bear the consequence of those choices. Now, the beautiful thing is that in the believer's life, we have the glorious reality of Romans 8:28, don't we? What does it say there? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the good news, that God in his sovereignty is able to even take these difficult, awful consequences that we get ourselves into, and he works them in such a way that they are able to produce good in our lives as, as believers. Verse 29 is really important too in chapter 8 of Romans. For those he foreknew, he also called to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is what's at work in God's great purpose. In his sovereignty, he is working 
all things together so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. I like to think of God as uh, not only a great composer, but he's a great improviser. He is able to take whatever is thrown at him in the heart and life of a believer and transform it into something that will bring about the, the crafting of his image in those who call him Lord. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. That's a beautiful, beautiful reality. Now, some people would say, now, wait a second. If God is sovereign, he can't really give up. He can't really give up his, his sovereignty. I mean, he gives, he gives us choice, but he's still sovereign, right? He still knows what's going to happen. He still causes all things to happen. Well, take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Would you turn there with me? Philippians chapter 2. It's important for us to understand that even in the life of Jesus, Jesus, who we know to be revealed as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the sovereign God himself. Here in Philippians chapter 2, we see these words written. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. We see here that Jesus himself emptied himself of equality with God and took on human flesh. And being found, verse 8, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This sovereign God, this king of kings, voluntarily emptied himself and submitted himself to human flesh, and not only to human flesh, the Lord and creator of life himself submitted himself to death. And not just any death. This righteous, righteous, unlike any other holy, anointed son of God, submitted himself to death on a cross. That is the, the penalty of a criminal. we see the voluntary giving up of that sovereign ability to call the shots for everything. And in the same way, God delivers to us choice. He yields to us. Let's look at verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sovereignty. Sovereignty sets everything in order. And that's what we see here. All, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will all come back into order. The result is verse 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the sovereignty of God at work. So let's go back to Psalm 29 and sew this up. Verse 11. And the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. That strength has multiple applications. There's four words that are connected to it. And I'd like to just quickly uh, run through them. There's force. Uh, Strength is force, right? It is um, that which is able to move something. We call that energy. It's force. But there's also security in it. Strength means security. Strength also means majesty. Majesty over all things. And even praise. To his people. The Lord will give strength to his people. Who are his people? In this context, he's talking about Israel. For us, we need to know that we are also, we are counted among the people of God. What does Peter say? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who we are. We are his people. So again, strength means force. That means a power to do or a power to not do. The ability to choose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 through 21, we have this glorious passage where Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be illumined, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his Uh, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That force, that power is the very power of resurrection. It means the, the ability to make dead things alive, the ability to make old things new, the, the ability to take, to take, make order out of chaos. Strength means security as well. We are in God's grip. We don't need to fear. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've made, we've asked from him. We are in God's grip. We are secure in his strength. Strength means majesty. We are co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've re- received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, and also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. It means praise. Strength means praise. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this joy that is set before him? We've all heard, many of us have heard, that we are that joy, right? We are that inheritance. It's more than that, though. It's the redemption of all things. That's God's great purpose, is to bring all things back into order. The buying back, the the reconciling, the making right of that which is wrong. That's also the joy that is set before him. And finally, the Lord will bless his people with peace. He blesses them with shalom. And what is shalom? It's not not just this, hey, peace, peace, baby. It's not that. It's It's the picture of wholeness. It's it's the picture of being complete. So God's sovereignty in in chapter 29 of the Psalms is about this. It's about God's immense power, his sovereignty over all of creation being brought to us and manifest in us so that we might experience the fullness of who he is. He is the sovereign God. And while chaos and pride challenge him, challenge his rule, his voice, his voice and his word prevails. So we have to ask ourselves, who are we listening to? Are we listening to the voices that cry out, that we are defeated, that we're in trouble, that we we're never going to get out of trouble? Or do we listen to the voice of the Lord who is sovereign over all those things that would seek to defeat us, that would seek to overwhelm us? The psalmist says, listen to God. And the response is glory. The response is absolute praise for who he is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that your 
Your sovereignty is not something that we need to fear. Rather, it is something that we can fully embrace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that that in your sovereignty, you reach to us and even embrace us. Lord, we want to yield our lives to you completely so that even the testimony of our living would say glory. Not just our lips, but Lord, how we live, how we interact with one another, that people would witness the majesty of who you are, even in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us, um, give us our very own personal picture of what that looks like for us this week. We thank you for the fact that, again, your sovereignty embraces us. It, doesn't, it does not destroy us. We thank you for your presence here, for your presence with us always. And Lord, we pray that you would help us hear your voice, even in the midst of the chaos around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.